Good morning. Is that on? Good. Well, I haven't preached for quite a while because uh, I lost my voice about a year and a half ago and, and I probably wasn't game to have a crack at it because I wasn't sure I was going to get through a, a sermon length talk, even though I do still talk a lot. But it, it, uh, it was a very unique experience for me losing my voice for about a month completely. So we'll see how this goes. Um, and thanks for the opportunity, Todd, to talk. Now, uh, late last year, Barbara and I went to a... Um, we, had, we had our anniversary in the end of November sometime, I think. <laughs> and um, and so, so, so we, went to see a, we went to see a movie. And you know, I've, I've managed to convert Barb's to science fiction movies. She wasn't a science fiction fan, and uh, we started off, I think when we were dating, we had to see a couple of Star Wars movies, when they were doing the, the rebooting of it all, and uh, I think she loves them now, sort of. <laughs> but anyway, on our anniversary, I don't go to those sort of movies, because we'll, we'll pick a bit of a, a softer, gentler, emotional, tearjerker type of movie, and what was showing at the time was a movie called Manchester by the Sea. Now, I wouldn't recommend the movie, because it was... Um, probably a bit coarse actually in some ways and you know it's one of those movies you think I don't know whether I think I might want to leave this movie has anyone ever left a movie because it was just too rough good on yous yeah that's 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 what we should do if you anyway we're at at this movie but there was something actually quite compelling about it it was this really dark gritty movie you know those sort of movies where gee this how could it could it get any worse I mean this guy um, it starts off with this guy shoveling snow so it was freezing cold it was just bitterly cold um, North America, northern part of, of the USA, um, around the New England area. He's, he's shoveling snow, and he hears us, he's, he gets a phone call. His brother's died of a, of a heart condition, and you know, it's a bit of a shock to him. But this guy was a complete loser in some ways. Not a loser in that he, he did things bad. He just everything was lost in his life. Completely disassembled life. Um, he he was asked to look after his nephew, and his nephew was a complete chaotic teenager and then you hear the story of this guy and he was married at one stage and one night he was he had a few mates around they ran out of food he um he'd gone to get some food and in the meantime his house had burnt down killed his children his wife was just completely um destroyed the whole thing it's just I'm looking at this and and you're watching and think gee this this is just chaotic and it sort of ended a bit like that you know those movies where it ends? There's no... doesn't sort of tie up nicely. There's no nice conclusion. It was a very bleak, cold movie. And I asked myself... This, and it was a very popular movie too, actually. It got won a couple of awards. I asked myself, why are people interested in that? Why, why, why was that popular? What, what's compelling about that? Why did I sit through and watch that? And, and you see, I, I think in a way, um, people identified with the chaos of this bloke's life. They could all reach into their own stories and, and see we're a bit like that at times. We like the idea that maybe it'll all come together in the end. But in a sense, stories are a way of trying to sort of find meaning even in our own lives. <clears throat> we are wanting to make sense of our lives. We're looking for a story that adds up, almost a framework or a, a sequence that, that brings meaning to us. Um, I think, in a way, you can look at life as a story. You begin as a baby, and you grow, you build, and you have the experiences. And in a sense, I think there's a there's a real um, stories are a real metaphor for life in a way. And I reckon that's why they're so popular. I reckon that's why um, people spend hours watching soap operas. It's they're pretty boring stories, but they're stories. And we we are almost caught up in this idea of stories being a very big part of of what life is. Now, last week, Rob um, preached on Acts 17, and that was actually going to be my, my passage. So I had to quickly do a bit of a revision of this. Um, but in a sense, as I looked at it, I thought about that passage, other than the fact that it was a display of false idols versus good idols, what else was going on in Acts 17? For those who weren't here, Acts 17 is the, the, the story of the Mars Hill Address of Paul, where he stands up and he says, you... Athenians, um, you know, you, 
you're worshipping the wrong God, let me tell you about him. That's the sort of guts of the story. And then he went on to talk about um, the tenets of our Christian faith. But in reality, why were they worshipping those false gods? What was going on there? Why does anyone worship a false god? Why does anyone construct some sort of um, structure of belief or faith or meaning? I think essentially they're trying to make life make sense. They're trying to construct a framework where this thing sort of adds up. So, you know, those characters were looking at the world around them and thinking, well, it must have been made by someone, or let's invent some gods. Maybe it was some gods that did all this, and and how do these gods work, and how are we to live, and what are the rules we we live by? It's really an attempt to to make meaning out of their life and the world they find themselves in, and Paul tried to put them right. Obviously, they didn't receive it too well, and um, they shut him down when he started to talk about Jesus. But in a way, everyone... All of us are trying to make sense of our life and I think it's a God-given hunger for that. I think in all of us we have this, this gnawing sense that life must add up to something. There must be some meaning out there. And I think in a lot of ways that's why people become Christians because they sense the emptiness without the story of God in their life so they, they find him. <clears throat> I think at the heart of human existence is this need to make sense of the world um, in a way, it's why people build a success narrative out of their life. They want to be successful because in a way, that's a story that looks good. Or they want to build a happiness story in their life. I just want to be happy. They want to have a story that feels like it has some meaning. Um, it's the same thing that drives the world's cry for injustice. The story doesn't look right when things are unjust. We want to make it right. Or the, the feeling of unfairness. When, when we see un, an unfair situation, we say that shouldn't be. The story doesn't look right. So these are all indications of this empty or this hunger for wanting to make sense or meaning of our life. And the popularity of good movies reflects that. We always want the hero to win, uh, the guy to get the girl, to kill the bad guys. You know, this nice sort of narrative that ends nicely. The difficulty is the stories often aren't good. And even in our lives as Christians, sometimes our stories are um, particularly gritty and messy and not so good and painful. Um, That Manchester movie was a complete unravelling of a bloke's life. Completely unravelled. It wasn't the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, where it's a science fiction movie that Barnes really enjoys, um, where, where in the end the guy gets the girl... The, the galaxy's saved, they all get a brand new ship and they fly off to the next great adventure. It wasn't one of those stories. Um, and often that's what life's like. Um, the guy doesn't get the girl, or the girl doesn't get the guy. Uh, the bad guy gets the dough. He runs off with the money and the kitten gets squashed. For any of you who are into kitten videos on YouTube. That's what happens sometimes. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of it without putting a false sort of prosperity theology narrative across it or some uh, thing that just isn't true? How do we make sense of life? How do we live and move in God's world, as it talks about in Acts 17 there, and, ha- and um, have our breath in God? What, what does that mean? How do we reconcile the ugly parts of our story, even as Christians? And how does God engage in our lives to, to give our lives meaning. So I just want to just explore that a little bit this morning. Um, Now there's a primary framework to making sense out of life and that's the grand biblical narrative that has often been expounded. Um, It's the idea that God made us, that we fell, Genesis 3, that God has redeemed us and restored us through Christ and one day we're going to be with him in glory. So there's a, there's a grand story. It's a beautiful story. It's the, it's the true story. But that, that's, that's an overarching story about the universe and about God's creation and about how we are in that. But what I want to talk about is how do we find our little part in that story? How do we weave our story and make sense of it in that grand narrative? So to do that, we'll just have a look at um, 2 Kings, chapter 19. Or 18 and 19. Um, And 
in that, I'm not going to read it because it goes for a while, but it's one of those fascinating Old Testament stories. You know that, you know the, that, the run of kings, you had good kings and bad kings, and the, the good kings get it all sorted out, they remove all the idols, and, get it all, and then they get this bad king. I'm sitting there thinking, what is going on here? Don't they, after two or three cycles, surely they should have worked out that if you're a good king and everyone's doing the right thing, Israel's blessed. But they never got that. So there's obviously a lot more going on in this, but I don't know whether there's... It's just, you know, the human condition that just keeps on popping up. But they have these cycles in kings where good and bad kings sort of oscillate all the way through. And in 2 Kings 18 and 19, we get to the, the second last king. And he's a good king. He's King Hezekiah. And he's just come after a bad king, Ahaz, his dad. And he rocks up. And what he, what's he do? He does what the good kings do. He removes all the idols. He restores worship. He even broke the bronze servant of Moses because they started to worship that. So he was, he was pretty seriously um, into being uh, as, as righteous as possible and serving God as faithfully as possible. <clears throat> it's a curious little story because it, it comes right at the end. It's after Israel has been carted off to Assyria. So you've only got Judah left. And here's this last, second last king. It's almost like God saying, listen, here's one more crack at it. Here, he's a good king. Can't you guys get this? Because after Hezekiah, they all, the whole thing um, just came in, in, down into a, a screaming mess. Uh, they were carted off. The last king was carted off as well. And it was all over for the for two kingdoms of, of Israel. <clears throat> now, in this passage, um, things were... Hezekiah had done all this work restoring um, Judah and bringing righteousness back to, to, to uh, the kingdom. Um, but things had got quite grim. They were besieged by the Assyrians. They, they just carted off the kingdom of Israel and now they were having a crack at Judah. So things were very grim. The, the, the whole nation was besieged by them. They'd, they'd been taking over various cities and they'd come to Jerusalem and things were grim. Let's turn to 2 Kings 18, just to get a little bit of a picture of what's happening. But I'm hoping you're all familiar with the story. 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 13. I'm just going to jump around a few verses here. Verse 13 first. And in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Okay, so this is what was happening at the time. And then we go to verse 19 and, and uh, 18 and 19. Sorry, 19 and 20. Then, then Rabshakeh, the Rabshakeh, he was obviously, he was the Assyrian king's uh, messenger, said to, to them, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this in which you trust? You speak of having counsel and strength for all, but they are vain words. And in whom do you trust that you rebel, rebel against us? So Hezekiah had rebelled against the Assyrians, and they'd come now to, to sort out Hezekiah. Okay, and then verse 26 and 27. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in the Aramaic language, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Hebrew in hearing the people who are on the wall. The... the, the uh, the people of Judah, they actually didn't want, the leaders of Judah didn't want the people to hear this because they, they knew that this was um, you know, getting near the end of, of uh, um, their setup. They were going to get rolled by the Assyrians. But the Rebshaker said to them, Has my master sent me to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on your wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? So he's basically saying, Listen, I know we're going to speak in, in Hebrew because we want them to hear that they're going to end up eating their own human waste. That's what's going to happen. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to pull this whole thing down. You're, you're toast. You, you should just give up and follow us. So things were very, very grim. The Assyrians were the world power at the time. <clears throat> okay, so what I want to do, I want to look at how Hezekiah responds to this because from that we can pick up some, some I, I call them um, actions or pillars or, or, or things that, that give, can give meaning to life even when things are troubled. And it doesn't get much more troubled than what Hezekiah um, had it. I, I want to give you four things that can help build meaning and 
give you a sense of completeness or security in, in being a Christian. And these are things that I've found very helpful in some of the challenges in my life. So I just want to look briefly at Hezekiah and how he responded to this difficulty. <clears throat> now, he's not perfect. Um, and no, no one is, only Jesus. But we can uh, find from the illustration of Hezekiah's life how he responded to a tough situation, how he was faithful um, and what he did. Because after him, it actually spectacularly crashed, as I said, with his son. So, in, but in, in the true sense of what the Old Testament is about, it's about revealing to us how God works in people's lives. And for us, one of the parts of, of Scripture is to look at faithful men and say, okay, what, what did they do? How did God respond? How does that work? How does that give meaning to our life? And that's what we're going to do today. <clears throat> now, the first thing that Hezekiah did, he acted. He did stuff. He went and used his God-given energy and his God-given life to do what he could do. Okay, now this is very important. The Christian life is not a passive life. We are called, firstly, to act, to do. God has given us um, a life. God has given us energy. God has given us capacity, capabilities and gifts. And we are called to exercise and, and use those, to act faithfully, um, uh, based on our understanding of how we are to live and what Scripture says about how we are to live, we are called to, to be energised in our walk with God. We are called to obey. We are called to persist. We are called to walk faithfully, to help others, to love. That's what Hezekiah did. If we turn to 2 Kings 18, 5 and 8, you'll see how um, Hezekiah took on the challenge of being a king. It says this, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, and from Watchtower to Fortified City. So Hezekiah was engaged in serving God with all of his life and his energy and what God had given him. And even in the, the, um, the siege, God, he, he had marshaled everyone behind the walls. He was trying um, with wisdom that he had and with God's word to do. That's the first thing we need to do. Whenever we encounter challenges in life, we, we must do what we can do. We must be energised. We can't just flop and say, oh, I don't know what's going on. This Manchester by the Sea guy, that's what, what was going on. This guy was just, he was like buffeted and he just, he didn't know what to do and he, he had no energy. The only thing he could do was, was get involved in barroom brawls. That's all he could do. It was, it was, just, it was, a, it was just a total catastrophe. But as Christians were called uh, to act. Secondly, we can pray. So he, here's something that the world does not have. They don't, once their, their actions are exhausted, what have they got? Nothing. What we have, we, we can pray. 2 Kings 19, 15 to 20. It says this, Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord... God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. You are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the king of Assyria, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the, wood, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, That which you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Okay, so the second thing we can do, we can cry out to God. And this should be part of our lives. We should be always considering um, God and his 
activity in our life and putting our life before him. We don't pray to the gods of wood or stone that is talked about there. We pray to a God who made us. We pray to a God who knows us intimately. We pray to a God who is completely um, and infinitely powerful and able to respond to us. Okay, so there's, there's the second activity, action, pillar that, that helps to give meaning in our life. The third one, 2 Kings 19, 6 and 7. Okay, so Hezekiah had gone to Isaiah, the prophet, and said, Isaiah, can you seek God? What, what, what do we do here? So he's gone to Isaiah and Isaiah responded. Isaiah said to him, verse 6, Thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, which, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumour and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by his own sword. What's happening there? God is speaking to Hezekiah through his prophet. Here's the third thing that gives meaning to our life. We don't live isolated. We live in a world that is ruled by a God who speaks to us. And his words give meaning to us. His words put a framework around sometimes even the despair and disorder of our lives. His words are truthful. His words are empowering. His words give us life. So that's the third aspect um, about God. Now, how does God speak to us? God speaks to us firstly through his word. We've got this book given to us by God through his spirit. So in a very um, blessed position, particularly in Western culture, we have access to God's word in an unfettered way. Uh, 20 years ago, Baz and I did a trip to China and and we, part of it, we were going to take Bibles in, in, in suitcases. So we actually we had to, we had to uh, live out of our carry-on bags for three weeks, which is really hard for Barb's. Because um, actually we had two. We had, I had mine and she had hers, but actually I, was, I had hers as well. Because she had her hairdryer and all the bits and pieces in that as well. So I had a tiny little part of my bag that I could have. And Barb's had everything else, sort of. So we had to drop these bags off, and, and why did we go there? Because the Chinese people couldn't, they couldn't have Bibles. So we, we took some Bibles in for them, and we met some people and distributed that, and we met some of the underground church people and whatnot. Um, but for us, we have scripture, we have open access, we've got commentaries, we've got online stuff, we've got you name it, we've got everything. We've got world class teaching that you can download from the web. Every week we meet and hear the word of God expand. I mean, it's just we're flooded with the word of God. So God speaks to us that way. Secondly, um, as, a, as a, uh, a church that believes in the continuation of the, of the gifts of the Spirit, we have all those at our disposal. We have um, the way the Spirit works through the gift of tongues, interpretation in prophecy, words of knowledge. Now, they're difficult for some people to understand, but they are there. God speaks to us by his spirit. Now, one of the beauties for us, I grew up in a Pentecostal church, one of the beauties of God's gifts of the spirit is that, that it, it gave me the idea that God is dynamic, that he speaks to us, that he is communing with us, that he is close to us. So in those two ways, there's great help in the way God speaks to us. And the fourth area is found in 2 Kings 19, 34 and 37. So at the end of Isaiah's response to, to uh, Hezekiah, Isaiah says this, uh, Isaiah made this comment, um, speaking God's words. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. 
And when people arose early in the morning, there were corpses, all dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away, returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the temple of Nisroch, his god, that his sons, Adramelech and Shareza, struck him down with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. Then Ishadon, his son, reigned in his place. Okay, what's going on there? God goes about his plan. No one can stop him. So the fourth thing that we can rest in and rely on is the fact that God's sovereign purposes will always be executed. Nothing will thwart them, nothing will change them, nothing will alter God's plan and purpose. So in this situation, and it's interesting that in Isaiah's response to to Hezekiah, he said, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So God's plan and promise to David to have a king on the throne so that one day Jesus will be the king on the throne, that's not going to change because of some Assyrian king. I don't care if he's a world superpower. That's so irrelevant to God's plans. God will perform his plan. God always will execute his plan and it will happen. Now, it's a bit of a mystery how God performs his plan and yet we are part of his plan and that we can pray and God responds. Now, it's something that people wrestle with a lot and all I can say is those, these things are true because um, scripture tells me so, that when we pray, God listens and responds. But also, God is completely in control of his universe. Everything that happens um, in a tremendous mystery, I think it's it's the greatest of all mysteries, the words I'm saying now are directed by God. Your very breath is directed by God. The way this day has unfolded is completely directed by God. Um, Peter tells us that... that, um, the atoms themselves are arranged and held by his power. He directs everything down to the minutest subatomic particles. These are all at God's discretion and at his order. So that's true, but also I'm responsible for my human actions. You are responsible for your human actions. And in God's universe, he's able to glue that together and there's no contradiction. Yet in our minds, as finite as they are, we think there's a contradiction there. But there's no contradiction. We're completely responsible for our actions and God is completely in control of all things. God's plan for David's kingdom was going to happen. Hezekiah's actions contributed to that. The Assyrian king's actions contributed to all that was part of God's plan and purpose. That's what happened. Now, how how do these four um, actions give us meaning? Now, I can probably contrast it with the Manchester story. In the Manchester story, this guy was like a, a, a bit of uh, foam on the, on the sea, just getting belted around by the waves. It was just, it was just chaos and disorder. Um, it was almost like you're born, a lot of junk happens, and then you die. That's about the story that was portrayed there. And I think at times, um, that's as good as an atheist's life is. And often when you hear an atheist give an address about the existence of God, they will say that almost. Well, we're just born, we, we live a life, try to find some meaning out, then we die. Well, there's no meaning in that. It's a completely mechanical view of life. That's all they've got. But for us, it's completely different. We are born by God's design. His spirit intervenes in our life. Jesus redeems us and he walks with, with us and one day we will be with him forever. We obey him. If I think about the context of what we've just spoken about, we obey him. We live faithful, active lives, reaping what we sow. So God responds to our faithfulness by rewarding us. We reap what we sow in life. We ask for help. We pray and he gives help. He speaks to us by his word and spirit. And if all seems overwhelming at times, we can rest in the truth um, that he's running the show. As chaotic as it may look in our life, whatever position you may be in your life, where your children are, where your job is, what your life might consist of, what your health position is, whatever it is, we can let rest in the truth that God is running the show. Okay, so there's, there's like a framework that we can 
gleaned from, Isaiah, from Hezekiah's life to help us make sense of our world. How, how, what does that look like? How does that work in our life? I can think of, I'll give you a couple of examples in my life, and I'll give you the, perhaps, perhaps one of the most challenging examples in my life, and that was my mum's death. And many of you would know my mum and uh, what happened to her. Uh, mum had a really challenging life. She had that many operations. She probably had 30 odd operations in her life. She had every bit of a, um, someone had done some work on. She had um, six, six odd fusions and a whole lot of repairs. She had cancer. Um, she had um, ears that, would, that had that had broken. I don't know, can't remember what it was, but something was wrong with her ears. She had an operation for that. She had adhesions in her stomach. She had, she had everything. You name it. She had it. She had um, conditions from, from x-rays that they'd done that went wrong. Mum was... She, whenever I went to a doctor with mum, they looked at that, and you could see the doctor would think, gee, whew. And then they'd flick over to the next page. Oh, there's another lot of things you've done. And the next page. So it was, she was a walking sort of medical case in a sense. But what happened with mum was she broke her neck in a quite a tragic sort of accident, um, and still um, survived that, but was on uh, a ventilator. Um, and what, what did we do? What did our family do, or what did I do? We tried first to care for mum. We did what we could for her. We took her to the hospital. Well, we didn't, the ambulance came and took her to the hospital. We made sure she had good care. We checked out the doctors, etc., etc. We did all we could do. It was very limited, but we did all we could do. Um, what did I do next? I prayed. Todd prayed. Shane prayed. Anyone that knew mum was praying for her. You know, if it, it was ever a prayer or one an answer was that, I, I prayed, God, if you could ju- just do this one miracle in mum's life, don't let her go out like this. This is just too tragic. For all she's been through to go out like this is... So I, I prayed. What, what happened next? God spoke to us. What, with an audible voice? No, but as I read the Bible to draw comfort, it talked to me about how he loved me and he loved my mum and he loved us as Christians and he cared for us. So that, those words gave me comfort. And then I read further, God is in control of all things, which swung onto that next pillar. He is sovereignly in charge. It says that it's appointed a time for man to die and then the judgment. Maybe it was mum's appointed time. I had to reconcile that truth. As hard as it may be, it did give me structure and meaning. As difficult as that was, it was for me a sense, at least there's order to this. As tragic as it might be, I know that God is in control. So that's how I applied those processes to my life. Very difficult that, but, but what if you didn't have that and you had the Manchester by the Sea approach, um, completely disassembled situation without God's story bearing in on that event. I'll give you another one. This one's a little bit lighter. Um, you, some of your kids are doing VC or exams at the, um, at the moment. What, what, how do you approach that? I'll tell you how I approached it. The first thing I did was I studied because that's what we can do. Now, if you don't study, um, usually things don't go well. So you've got to study. Use the God-given abilities of you've got to, to be faithful. And what, what's God say? You sow, you'll reap. If you study, you'll reap the benefit of that study. Now, some people reap the benefit of study better than others. That's just how it works. But if you don't study, there won't be no benefit, let me tell you. Because sometimes I didn't study and I scrambled. You must do something. You must sow into that. You must act. You must study. Second thing you do is pray. Before every exam, I used to sit down before every exam and I studied till I was about 21. And every exam, first few minutes of every exam, I bowed my head and I prayed, God, I've studied the best that I could. Please help me. Just like that. Because God says he will be faithful to us. Um, The third thing that happens, um, he speaks to us. As we read his word, as we hear from him, he guides us and directs us. You read the Bible, you'll find plenty of information there about even something like studying, how we should do our best to glorify God. We should um, put in in situations in our life and invest what God's given us. And then um, the other thing we, we need to do is we need to hear his plans for our lives. 
What's VCE all about? Or what's any exam? You're going somewhere. You're going to end it in a destination. So you want to know what God wants you to do with that. I used to pray like, God, what do you want me to do with this physics degree that I'm studying for? You know, and it was pretty chaotic because my dad died midway through my degree. So I was pretty screwed up um, thinking about all that. But I just thought, God, do you want me to do anything with this? And that's what you should be doing with your studies, for example. God, lead me. Help me to find the purpose of studying. It gives meaning to study. Because sometimes when you're studying, you think, what am I doing this for? I'm doing algebra or I'm doing differential equations or I'm doing um, biology or English essays and story. What's all this for? Well, ask God to, to direct you, to give meaning to that. And the fourth thing is we can rest in the fact that um, God's in charge here. Whatever the result of the exam, whatever the result of the study, God's in charge. You've done your best, you've prayed, you're listening. God, the result's in, in your hands. You can actually rest in that. And, and after doing that many exams, after a while I just got pretty comfortable, going to do an exam, not sure what the result will be, I can just, done the work, prayed, God, the rest is up to you. So even in something like that, you can apply those four principles. Now, sometimes you can lean on a principle more than others. And, and say in the case of mum's death, I relied heavily on God's sovereignty because we couldn't do much to help mum. Um, we pray, faithfully um, giving the result to God and we just rested in the result. Um, sometimes, like in VCE, you, wanna, you want to uh, study hard. Um, you, God, I don't think God is going to give you, uh, going to honour it if you do nothing and just say, God, I haven't done any study, but I know you'll come through for me. It's, it's not going to work. Okay, so you want to make sure you put time into that. In different situations we find ourselves, um, each of those four truths perhaps has more bearing or has, has, a, has a more, more of an impact on our life. Now, only through God's story um, does life make any sense. I don't advocate you go watch that movie Manchester by the Sea, but it's a, it's a, a case study on how things don't make any sense without God. Only through God's story does life make any sense. Ultimately, at the heart of that movie or, or life is this question, Why? In, in a sense, we, 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 want, we are drawn to stories, we think about stories because we're trying to work out why is this? What, what, how, how does my life make meaning? Why, why are these things happening? The, these questions sort of gnaw away at people. I, I heard a fantastic sermon by Vody Borkham a number of years ago and I always remember it. He says we always ask these questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Why is the world so wrong? And what can be done about it? And in a way, those four approaches or actions um, answer those questions. If we reflect back onto the uh, passage that Rob stole from me last week, Acts 17, um, even in that, even in Paul's address to on, on Mars Hill there, and I'll, and I'll finish with this, um, it goes through these four points in a way. Let's read that, Acts, Acts 17. For those, again, that weren't here, Paul's basically been put up on the, on the pedestal and he's going to, tell us your strange teaching, they asked him. Give, give us, you know, what, what, what are you on about? What, what, how do you make sense of the world? Effectively, they, they were asking him. And, and Paul made these comments, Acts 17, verse 24. Um, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor has he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. 
Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. That's Jesus. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So even in that passage there, we can see the threads of Hezekiah's approach. Um, In verse 25, we can act. In verse 27, we can pray. We can seek him. In verse 30, God has spoken. He commands us. And he's spoken through his son. And in verse 31, God acts. So in a, a very neat way, the same things that were going on in Hezekiah's life are proclaimed by Paul, that we, we have a responsibility to act. We can call out to God. God can speak to us and God will enact his will. So those four things bring meaning to our lives and bring meaning to our story. Only through God's truth, only through looking at at life through this lens, does life make any sense. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that, Lord, you have made us, Lord, that we can live and act and move faithfully. We thank you, Lord, for giving us that capacity. We thank you, Lord, that we can pray to you, that, God, you listen to us, you care for us. Lord, you respond to us. We we thank you, Lord, that you speak to us. We thank you, Lord, that we can hear you through your word and your spirit. We thank you, Lord, that you're not a God constructed out of our own imaginations, a God of stone or gold or silver. But Lord, you are a living God in in whose image we are made. And we thank you, God, that you are a purposeful God, that you have a plan, Lord, that was birthed in eternity past, Lord, that you will bring about, that God, you guide every atom, every molecule, every particle, every sun, every planet, every galaxy, Lord, you guide and make all things move according to your plan. Lord, we can trust in that. Lord, we can put our hope and our faith in the fact, God, that you will bring about your plans. And God, when you call us to yourself, Lord, it will be a a call that is sure. We thank you, Lord, for the, the confidence and the rest we can have in that. And I pray for everyone here today. Lord, whatever situation they are going through, I pray, God, that you will help them to see, Lord, how they can live in your world and put their trust in you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, thank you. Joe? Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Thanks, Pete. Um, yeah, really good words to, to live by. We, we've also had experience in that, Tony and myself, um, in, a, in a big way, actually. When Jamison was born, um, we didn't know what was wrong with her. Um, the doctors didn't know what was wrong with her. It's very hard to hear that. And we went through those steps as well. So we went through trying every test under the sun, unbelievable how many we did. And, um, you know, so we're trying that. We prayed and we actually felt a really deep peace very early on that God was totally in control. This kid couldn't feed. She was going backwards. She was failure to thrive. You know, she was not putting on any weight whatsoever, Um, losing weight below her birth weight. And um, God gave us peace for it. was at least eight weeks until we got a diagnosis. I can't remember, maybe ten weeks um, old. And then it was finally, okay, she's not going to die. But in that time, you know, we were prepared that she 
we might not keep this kid. You know, and that's that's a pretty hard thing to go through, but we had a, an immense peace, thanks to God, knowing that he was in control. Now, we know a lot, of, a lot of people with kids with disabilities, and typically they go through a really strong grieving time um, when they find that out. And we didn't we didn't feel that, you know. So we were really protected by God by that, you know, by that deep knowledge. Anyway, that's not what I was going to talk about. So <laughs> on we go. Um, um, yesterday, our family we were we were blessed to be able to attend a wedding, and it was a great celebration. Beautiful Christian couple got married, and it was um, a very precious event. Anyway, this reminds me of the wedding that, that Jesus attended. So I'm just going to read that um, little story out. It's in John chapter 2. So on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and, and his disciples believed in him. There is much good stuff in this passage, but I just want to look at one aspect of this today. So I wonder why Jesus chose this to be the first miracle and sign. At first glance, it seems to be a pretty cool party trick. I mean, this must be the best wine that's ever been produced in the whole history of the world. You know, can you imagine tasting that? (laughs) But it's much more than that. Notice that the water came from um, stone water jars and they were used for ceremonial washing. So the servants kept it quiet because it's probably not the right thing to do to use that uh, that water for other purposes because the Jews used this water for purification. But this purification process doesn't stick, does it? You know, the Jewish person, person had to keep repeating this over and over. So Jesus turns this this symbol of purification into wine. So where was Jesus pointing with this first miracle? He was pointing straight to the cross. It's like a line in the sand. It's, you know, old ways, new perfect way. So immediately prior to his crucifixion, Jesus tells us to drink the wine to remember him and his sacrifice on the cross. So Jesus' sacrifice results in our one-time-only, permanent purification in the eyes of God. So that's pretty amazing. Jesus' first miracle is really saying, I am the only one who can provide purification. I am God of your rituals for becoming clean, and I've come to fulfil this promise, and my way is far superior. Todd, can you pray for that?
Satan drink. That's better, isn't it? Now you can hear me. Bless the gods that have given Pete enough breath to speak today. It's, uh, it's great to hear him to share, open up God's word for us. Um, that's the end of our service. Please stay for coffee and cake. If anybody would uh, like to catch up with me, I'm more than happy to see you uh, about anything at all. So uh, be blessed now as we reflect on Pete's word and Joe's uh, communion as we have uh, some coffee and cake now. Amen. Thank you.